Why did I write this book? Well, as the rabbi said, for those of you who aren't here, I've done a lot of publishing. I have uh, seven textbooks. And uh, they are what they are. But over time, I became more and more interested in providing information to people whom I thought actually had a lot more influence than just doctors or psychologists or social workers, namely the people who are recipients of care or their loved ones. And uh, that uh, too often uh, they are witnessing what is a system of care that is quite broken, the result of which is that four out of five people with a mental illness in this country don't get properly diagnosed and don't get effective care. That's a really frightening and appalling statistic, particularly if that involves somebody whom you know, somebody whom you love. One in five chance of getting the right thing. And that, so that the book was uh, driven by many years of questions. Families would come and ask me these questions. Who do I turn to? Who, whom can I trust? How do I know what good care is? How do I talk to my loved one who doesn't want to go for care, or refuses to take medication, or doesn't want to stay care, fights with me, denies that he or she is sick? These are the questions, and many, many more. And uh, so I had been answering these questions, one by one, family by family, or in small meetings, and I thought, well, let me try to convey them in a book so that it would be available to far more people. One in five people in this country every year have a serious mental illness. What I mean by a serious mental illness is that it persists and it impairs their functioning. For youth, it impairs their ability to succeed in school or get a job. For adults, it impairs their, their functioning, their responsibility at work or at home. These are illnesses that uh, are not just incidental passing moods or troubled states. These are illnesses that set in and persist and unless properly diagnosed, they, there's a great toll that's paid for these. And, and so you don't want, no family wants their loved one to be in the 80% that doesn't get what works. For youth, untreated mental illness, is associated with children doing youth, adolescence, young adults, falling out of school, not getting jobs. Untreated serious mental illness in adolescence actually portends later disability. There's good studies that say that untreated mental illness in adolescence, which goes on for years, allows the progression of a disease in the brain that later disables that youth. So this is not of a small consequence when you think about the life of somebody who's falling ill uh, with a mental illness. A half of mental, 50% of mental illnesses come on by the time someone is 14, 75% by the time they're 24. So youth are particularly vulnerable. For adults with untreated mental illness, the consequence, particularly if they have uh, positions of responsibility, is that their work performance is impaired. 
This is often called, uh, this is measured by uh, things like absenteeism or a term some people may have heard of called presenteeism. Has anybody heard of presenteeism? Presenteeism is showing up at work but being there sort of half able to function. So untreated mental illness in working uh, people impairs their productivity and imperils their uh, capacity to retain their jobs and with that puts in peril the financial stability of a family. For adults, for seniors with untreated mental illness, they, uh, when they also have, which is very typical, the diseases of aging, like heart disease or diabetes or Parkinson's disease, and they have uh, also a depression. That, that presence of an untreated mental illness increases enormously their risk of medical disability or death. They don't get better from their primary illness, which is a physical illness, because they've got a mental illness. So these are just some examples across a lifespan of the consequences of not being able to get a loved one, get care, and stay in care and get the help that that person needs. So <clears throat> when, uh, when I began thinking about this book, I, uh, pardon me if I'm repeating uh, to those people who were here earlier when I gave a few comments, if you go onto Amazon there are, and put up mental health titles, there are about 70,000 mental health titles uh, that come up from Amazon. And they principally focus on diseases, depression, <clears throat> bipolar disease, excuse me, schizophrenia, post-traumatic stress disorder, eating disorders, attention deficit. But my, what I've learned from families over the years is that it's not the illness that presents the greatest challenge over time. They learn about the illness, but in fact, their greatest challenges are twofold, which are first understanding and navigating a mental health system, which most everybody will tell you is very broken. People don't talk to each other, it's not accountable, it doesn't deliver high standards of care, and this is not because of the people who work in it, it's because of how it has evolved over the years, and it's not evolved well, so they're going to enter a mental health system which is broken and which is not apt to deliver to their loved one what their loved one needs. The second major challenge, perhaps even more heartbreaking, is that their loved one often denies that he or she has an illness or is hopeless. Why bother? Nothing will help for the uh, for the Yiddish-speaking uh, people in, in the audience, uh, Gornish Helfen, nothing will help. Some are ashamed, some don't want to be a burden. Uh, many reasons account for the fact that a loved one won't go for care, but it doesn't matter if, uh, what the reason is if they won't go because they're not getting effective treatment. And there's lots of studies you know, to the New Yorker notwithstanding, that say that psychiatric treatments are as effective as are treatments for other persistent illnesses like diabetes or hypertension or asthma. We have good treatments, but people, people have to uh, go to them, have to stay in them, 
uh, doesn't work unless you go and unless you're delivered good standards of care. So that was what prompted me to write this book, and uh, I focused as a consequence on the experience that families would have. So this is a book that speaks to families. It can speak to people who are ill, but my primary audience is families. And it moves through a different sections. So I'm going to read to you a, a little bit from the, the quality of care section. But I spend a fair amount of time helping families understand how to recognize a problem, how to talk to a loved one, how to engage others, get support to do something. I write scripts because you know it's not just uh, um, you, people like to know, okay, he said, she said, he said, uh, she said. So there are scripts for difficult moments. I talk about money, which is a major driver in fact, probably the first question that gets asked when people want to go for care, what's your health insurance? I talk about the law, which in mental health is, uh, more, is more um, a factor than in any other specialty uh, of medicine. And the laws are, are uh, ones that were developed 50, 60 years ago. There are laws about privacy that don't let people, don't let families speak to doctors or doctors speak to families. Uh, there are laws that don't let doctors or uh, clinicians talk with each other. These are privacy laws. These are federal laws. These are called HIPAA laws. And I talk also about uh, laws, typically state laws, that have over the years set a very high threshold for getting somebody into care. Um, uh, and uh, this has been called uh, dying with your rights on. And there are often examples of this where People go for care or they try to get their loved one for care and they go to an emergency room or some other place and they say, well, sorry, we can't do anything. He or she is not immediately a danger and the beat goes on and the condition worsens. So I talk about those um, and try to inform people about how to the system works and how they can and need to be very aggressive advocates. It may not be right, it may not be fair, but it's true in healthcare in general and it's especially true in mental health care, which is that you have to know how the system works and you have to uh, be an, uh, a very vocal advocate uh, for, for that. And to do that, you have to, you know, you need some coaching. So I want to now read a few sections short, if you will. Excuse me. That, that have to do with um, the, uh, a, a part of the book that has to do with uh, how families or anybody uh, can determine whether care is any good. And I, I write about six principles of care, but I want to illustrate three for you. Uh, the first principle is that treatment must be safe. The second is that the care must be based on some existing science, if it exists. It's called evidence-based medicine, which is very popular nowadays. And then the third uh, is essentially um, a, uh, uh, a response to what is a very common question, which is, 
how do I tell if the treatment is working? Okay, so treatment should be safe. During the 14th century, surgeons abandoned what had been the established treatment for gunshot wounds. Instead of removing debris, washing gently with water, and covering the wound to protect and encourage natural healing, a medical practice was started. Um, that those, those ways of caring for wounds, uh, which was uh, gently, uh, was established with the Egyptians. But in the 14th century, there began the practice of pouring boiling oil into battle wounds. I'm not making this up. That disastrous practice continued for over 200 years until a French army surgeon rediscovered that gentle cleansing and protection of wounds uh, uh, would work better, and he discovered it when he ran out of oil on the battlefield. Psychological wounds also need gentle care, protection, and the opportunity for healing, not boiling oil. As a family member, you want to ask about the risks attached to any form of intervention. Standard medical practice requires the prescription of medicine be done with what's called informed consent. The doctor needs to tell the patient why he or she is suggesting a specific medication, as well as explain its potential benefits and risks, its common side effects, and what alternatives exist. Many good doctors will also speak with their patients about the potential risks of no treatment. Treatment should be safe. There is no medication, psychiatric or otherwise. There's no psychiatric treatment whatsoever that is without risks and side effects. It goes on, but I just want to give you an illustration of a principle. So you don't have to go to medical school, you don't have to go to graduate school in psychology, you don't have to spend hours in the library. You need some good common sense, otherwise known as sechel, uh, to be able to appreciate that there are certain fundamental principles that you can recognize and that you can assert when thinking about the care someone you love is receiving. The second, a second principle or example is what's called evidence-based medicine. How many of you have heard that term, evidence-based medicine? Okay, a lot. So this has become a big mantra in medicine, and it's a pretty good thing because it means essentially that studies have been done in a particularly controlled way to try to separate out whether an intervention, whether it's a treatment or a, sur a medication or a surgery or a therapy, is better than no treatment. And this is done by a rigorous procedure called randomized control trials. Well, what that means is uh, experiment is set up, let's say it's a medication, and a, batch, a lot of people are recruited and some get the medicine and some get the placebo, and the patient and the doctor don't know which they've gotten, they've on it long enough, and uh, there's a judgment made as to whether the active ingredient, the active intervention, does better than placebo. So this, um, this scientific method has become a standard practice and um, the, uh, 
and used uh, widely um, when possible. Now, one of my former jobs uh, a while ago was I was uh, I did a bit of work developing treatment guidelines uh, for my field, and I did a lot of uh, research uh, to try to identify what evidence existed, and I found out that most evidence is about drugs because pharma companies uh, pay for them, and there's actually quite a little bit of evidence. There's too, few, uh, too, too minuscule evidence about other treatments. So this is a good thing, to, uh, that there be principles. And if you want uh, principles of evidence-based care, and you want, uh, if there's evidence that this treatment works better than that treatment, or this combination of therapy and uh, medications works better than either alone, then you want to see to it that your loved one has that type of evidence-based care. But this is not a dogma. This is not a, uh, this was not written, uh, excuse me, in, in, a, in a temple. This was not delivered from on high uh, with tablets. And there's a wonderfully ironic editorial about evidence-based medicine, which says it's not a religious dogma to pay attention to. This appeared some years ago in the distinguished British Medical Journal. The editorial reported on how we should not expect to see randomized control trials on parachutes. Because getting control subjects to agree to not use the anti-gravity device, the parachute, had proven too difficult. Thus, proof of effectiveness of parachutes has been scientifically limited because rigorous evidence, which requires control subjects, was lacking. What this tale means is that there are some treatments you will want your loved one to use even if they haven't met the standards of proof required by medical journals and professional associations. Second example of a principle of evidence-based care but not a dogma. And then the third example uh, I want to uh, illustrate and read to you and then uh, go to the last summary comments is called measurement-based care. At some point, every patient and loved one wants to know, how can I tell if my treatment is working? At first glance, the answer may seem obvious. An antidepressant is working if the patient regains a sense of pleasure in life, is not crippled by sadness, resumes normal sleep and eating habits, thinks more clearly, and sees hope in the future. Or a course of cognitive behavioral therapy, a specific type of psychotherapy for obsessive compulsive disorder, is working if the patient can leave the house without dashing back a dozen times to check that the stove is not on. These changes are called symptom-based improvements. They can be understood and they can be measured. And the good news is that they often can be achieved in weeks or months with proven treatments, evidence-based treatments, that are consistently provided and adhered to by the patient. But in many situations, the answer may be less clear. For example, for patients with schizophrenia, this is a chronic psychotic condition, bipolar disorder or alcohol and drug abuse disorder, the road to recovery may not be as prompt or straightforward as all would wish. 
Treating trauma-induced conditions from abuse, neglect, or torture is often more complex. Although patients with these conditions have a good chance of recovery over time, the horizon for improvement tends to be farther off. Early in the course of treatment, they may suffer repeat episodes of illness, relapses, or recurrences, which can require repeat emergency room visits or hospital stays before the treatment takes hold and recovery begins. I like to ask my patients and their families not only why are you here, but also what do you want to accomplish? What do you want to accomplish? This helps us all know in the future whether the patient is getting what he or she came for. Does the patient want to be able to sleep better and feel hopeful, be less angry and get along with other family members, return to work or do better in school, have a date or feel more comfortable in social situations? When goals are clearly stated at the outside of treatment, it's easier to assess whether the treatment is working on working later down the road. Some doctors, clinics, and treatment programs use checklists, simple paper-based uh, reports, like for depression or PTSD. And these are actually very reliable. They're just about as reliable as putting a blood pressure cuff on your arm in terms of uh, uh, assessing the, the severity of a condition and seeing change. So with blood pressure, if your blood pressure is up, you get treatment, the numbers go down. It's the same thing with these instruments. So this is what's called measurement-based care. And I bet you, you know, a quarter that it's hardly happening anywhere you turn. Um, and, uh, you know, as much as I try to appeal uh, to doctors, uh, in my day job, I have 741 psychiatrists that work for me, that work for my agency. That's a lot of psychiatrists. Can you imagine having 70, 741 psychiatrists working for you? That's why you have to go to, to, you know, to California once in a while, and you, that's why you have to go to the temple a lot. Um, all right. So, so, so those are some examples. So I want to conclude with what I think are the four main messages uh, that uh, derive uh, that I try to provide and that you can derive uh, from the book. The first is, don't go it alone. The second is, and it's much harder, the second is, don't get into fights. The third is, learn the rules of how the mental health system works and learn how to bend them. And the fourth is recognize that you're on more of a marathon than a sprint. Let me just say a few words about each of these. and then okay. Don't go it alone. So this is a lesson that has been learned with every persistent illness, whether it's colitis, diabetes, Alzheimer's. People who try to go it alone don't wind up having the information, and more importantly, they don't have the support that they need to both stand up to a medical care system that is too, too uh, hurried um, and not apt to pay as much attention or ensure that your loved one gets care. So you learn these things by turning to other people. And there are a lot of other people to turn to. And I talk about this in the book as well. Some people will turn to their family doctor 
who knows their loved one for a long time. Some people will turn to clergy. There's hardly any clergy person who uh, almost every day doesn't confront mental illness in a family in their, in their parish. Um, that, um, the, so the, that's one place to turn uh, in terms of others. There are often, because these illnesses are so common, they're ubiquitous, almost no family is untouched. There will be people in your family, maybe not immediate family, extended family, or, or work co-workers, or uh, friends who have uh, been ill or who have had loved ones who are ill. They are terrific people to turn to because they have been there and they have answers. Um, there are advocacy organizations, uh, one that I have worked with very closely, I think the largest and the best in the country is called the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Has anybody here gone to, or do we have any representatives from NAMI here? Okay. So NAMI is a family organization, it's, uh, and the, the heart of the training, uh, that, uh, the heart of the coaching that families can get is called family to family. I've gone to a lot of family to family meetings, and they're remarkable because they're non-judgmental, they're practical, eight or 10 or 12 people sit in a room, they may have a, a child, they may have a sibling, they may have a parent who's ill, and it's about problem solving, it's private, and it's free. Um, and they also uh, uh, do referrals on the phone. It's an amazing organization. So you don't have to go it alone. There are resources. There are people and organizations to turn to. Don't get into fights. So this is the hardest prescription, I think, of all. Because imagine you're seeing someone whom you love deteriorate. They refuse. They lock them, uh, he locks or she locks herself up in the room. They don't eat. Um, they're smoking dope. You can smell it because it's coming out. Uh, the aromatic odor is coming out from under the door. They're dropping out of school. You wonder whether they have a weapon. You see all of this terribly, terrible deterioration going on, and what, what do you do? Your love and your concern drives you, which usually results in all of us amplifying our efforts, right? You try harder. You push harder. Your voice goes up, you start, and, but that produces somebody else, a, a digging in by the person that you're trying to influence. So um, crossing swords as much as you, you think, well, you know, this is terrible, my reasoning has got to work, crossing swords doesn't work. And I talk about two paths, one that has to do with listening and one that has to do with leverage. Uh, because I believe that all, all behavior serves a purpose, we just don't know what it is. Until you find what it is, you don't really quite know how to navigate what's going on. A mother who doesn't go to work because she can't think straight and she's afraid she'll be uh, uh, incompetent at work and stays away from work. A young, ch uh, young teenage girl who doesn't eat because every time she eats she has a panic attack and she won't put a morsel in her mouth. There are, you know, so the, these are important things to understand, but then leverage comes into play. Families, being a part of a family is a two-way street. You give and you take and you use, whether it's your support, your money, a place to stay, your love, whatever it is over time to press somebody to get the care that you know is going to make a difference. Listening and leverages are the alternatives to fighting. And last is recognizing that with this, with mental illnesses, that a family, a person who's ill, is on more of a marathon 
than a sprint. And that's a really important message for families because they have to learn uh, to, um, uh, to ration, in a way, their feelings. They can't spend all their feelings or all their money initially because they won't be there for, a long, for the long run. You have to think about, this is an illness, it's set in, how is my family going to care for someone? How are they going to emotionally support them? How am I going to emotionally tolerate this? So you see books about this, the 25-hour day for people with Alzheimer's. The same applies. Mental illnesses are no different from chronic physical illnesses when they're serious. They go on. They demand of families. Uh, families uh, will have their will and their morale tested. Uh, and the message here is what uh, Churchill said uh, to the Brits in the darkest hour, which is never, ever give up. Never, ever give up. One thing we've learned as clinicians is that people do get better, but we're really not good at predicting when. So you have to stay with it, because at a certain point, sometimes for reasons you don't even understand, people become more disposed, they go to treatment, or the treatment begins to kick in, and they begin to rebuild a life. Never, ever give up. So those are the four messages I try to impart. Don't go it alone. Don't get into fights. Be a vocal advocate um, for, um, for your uh, loved one. And bend the rules uh, if, when you have to, in every way you can. And that you're on more of a marathon uh, than a sprint. So I will stop there, and I welcome your comments and uh, questions. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. They're in every state and most every county. Another, another really strong organization is called Mental Health America, which uh, also does. But NAMI is, is all families. It's a family-based organization. Yes?
account. NAMI is a, is a terrific way of enabling families to gain confidence in what they're seeing and what they need to do, uh, which nobody urges people to do. Um, and uh, and you know most people are intimidated by doctors, and you need you need coaching. Yes. So the difference in oh, oh. in the ease of getting medical care for physical ailments and getting medical care for emotional or mental ailments. Why is it so inaccessible and difficult to organize? Yeah. Well, it, don't be fooled. It's not perfect. Um, uh, in terms of a general medical care. Rand Corporation here in California take, took a look at the statistics of somebody with a chronic physical illness apt to being able to get properly diagnosed and effectively treated. It's about 60 percent. It's so much, three times better. Yes, it's so much better. Why? <clears throat> by Kennedy in the 60s. And I have to be on the Mental Health Commission because we ended up adopting a daughter who years later we found out by accident had been born basically suffering from chronic schizophrenia paranoia. Uh, I'm a vice chair <coughs> So, the, so, so this is really important, and I think you can get these details uh, from him, but I think your key question is, why, how, how can you get away with ignoring something that's so prevalent and so destructive? And that's probably a measure of the stigma that continues to exist for mental diseases. Um, and also worries over time that uh, actually if you open the doors to good treatment, it would bankrupt the medical care system. And the, what's happened as of late is a lot of federal studies that show actually that doesn't happen. And when I was mental health commissioner in New York City, the first thing I did was analyze the money spent on mental and addictive disorders and the money, the, what it cost for untreated illness. It's, it's five to 10 times greater. And you see this in terms of people homeless on the street, in shelters, in emergency rooms, and particularly in jails and prisons. Uh, so this, this gentleman's point, in the 60s, there was an effort to try to move away from hospital care, which is not the answer, to community-based care, but the resources never were delivered. So hospitals were closed, a lot of people moved out of asylums, out of hospitals, but without the uh, community-based care, and uh, consequently, things have gotten worse. 
opposed to physical ailments. Yes, yes, and what one of the uh, I don't you know I, I, this is not this is not a political paid political statement, but the Affordable Care Act um, does not only increase the number of people eligible for health care substantially around the country, but it also has two other components. One is that it makes as an essential benefit mental health and addiction services. Essentially, you can't just exclude it if you're a health insurer. And then there's a, uh, a adoption of an existing federal law called parity, which means that if a health insurance company or an employer, if you are self-insured, if you, uh, you know, purchase your health insurance for your employees here at the temple, um, that if you provide mental health care, you must provide it at the same uh, to the same uh, with the same measures or param uh, the same um, uh, benefits as you would uh, for physical care. You you can't have higher deductibles. You can't have higher copayments. You can't say I'm only going to pay ten thousand dollars for this, but a hundred thousand dollars for heart. So those elements in the Affordable Care Act, which are essential benefits and parity, over time are going to edge. Uh, to, uh, a lot more people to be able to get care, but it's it, we're really coming from behind. So yes. One, um, based on what you just said in terms of parity, is that that's only for serious mental illness? Is that not? No, true? it's for it's for any mental disorder. It's for any it diagnosable mental disorder, including alcohol and drug abuse. Is that in my practice, I um, haven't seen a lot of psychosis, fortunately, but with a lot of the adolescents that you mentioned, the high rate that they are having problems, I, I just so often feel it's the, uh, the parents who are driving them crazy, quite frankly. And it's just very challenging to me to know how to deal with them. Yeah, this is, this is really important, but my, one of another one of my messages for families, and I, I believe it's really critical to start there, which is to believe that it's not their fault, and that families need to believe that it's not their fault. Because if they do, then they'll never open for problem solving. And in fact, if you have a disturbed child, it often, and you don't have, if you go it alone, if you don't have uh, appreciation of what is happening, how to manage those moments, then you wind up yelling. You wind up doing things that actually backfire. So there's a whole set of behaviors, unwelcome behaviors that we often see when families themselves become out of control because they don't know what to do, they don't know how to handle a moment. So the more families are coached, the more families understand, the more they're going to be able to be the kind of families where you say, boy, that fellow's really lucky he's got a family like that. Yes. Center in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, a lot of the children were put on SSI for a mental disability. Yeah, that's a disability, social security disability. Cost of care. Now, it was my understanding that that could follow them through the rest of their lives that there's something somewhere that says, aha, this kid was on SSI, he has an emotional problem. Uh, is that still true? Is that gonna follow a person through the, his so this, life? This, this, I, I do talk about these things because this is really the kind of detail you wind up uh, 
having to learn about if you have a very ill child. Uh, but social so often uh, a family or a young person will go on Social Security in order to be eligible for Medicaid or Medicare benefits. Otherwise, they may have no health insurance at all. Um, or they may not be unable to work and the, and the Social Security provides them with a minimum amount of money on which to live. Almost nobody who gets on Social Security gets off it. Almost nobody. And that's become such a paramount issue in Washington that even the federal government is concerned about that because it's one of the – because as people age and you have – you're spending billions and billions of dollars on these type of benefits, uh, particularly Medicare disability, Social Security disability. Uh, the, so there are now programs emerging that allow people – and we have this in New York State – that allow people to work, earn $10,000, $15,000, $20,000 a year without jeopardizing their health insurance. These are called Ticket to Work programs. We have now the largest one um, in the country. We have, a, we have 5 million people on Medicaid. Uh, but uh, so, so there are, the federal government is finally realizing that what seemed like a good idea a long time ago is not such a good idea. And you have to give people ways of not being foolish, you know, turning in their essential health benefits, because uh, they won't. They'll just stay on disability. But if they can stay, keep their benefits and work, that's a route out. And that there's there's some of that going on. Susan, did you? No. Okay. Yes. Can the procedure a layperson would go through if they suspected mental health issues with either their self or a family member. I mean, personally, I would go to a mental health specialist, but I would think that somebody who, who uh, when, when stigma is involved and any other, uh, lots of other um, complicating <coughs> factors, they're going to go to their GP or their internist and they're going to say, I don't think something's quite right here. Where do they go from there, and what's the process they have to go through? It, I mean, I would this think is it's probably awful. This is a terrific question. In fact, um, most people with mental problems, maybe not very severe psychotic conditions, are or will only get their care in their, from their family doctor. The story I like to tell about this, if I have a moment, Rabbi, this it's a personal story. So when I when one of the things I worked on when I was in New York City was I wanted to uh, install depression screening um, and, uh, um, and uh, depression care in primary care, in general medical practice. And um, the, uh, but, uh, and, and, but mostly what happens is even if it's detected, somebody is then given an appointment card and told, you know, go see this psychologist, the psychiatrist even down the block. So I asked my mother, as was my focus group of one. So I said, Mom, you know, I got this idea. You know me. I've got these ideas. They're usually a little, I need your opinion. And I said, what if Dr. Pardo, that was the name of her doctor in Florida, what if Dr. Pardo said, Harriet, you have a depression. I can tell I'm your doctor. I've known you for a long time. You have a depression, and I want you to go see Dr. Goldfarb, she's a terrific psychiatrist. She's just down the hall. What would you do, Mom? And my mother said, 
I would never go see Dr. Goldfarb. Never. I said, Mom, you know, your, your son is a psychiatrist. She said, I would never go see a psychiatrist. <laughs> Dr. Pardo's my doctor. He should take care of me. And that leap from uh, general care to specialty care is one that very few people actually take. And uh, so our work, uh, well, I've concentrated for the, over the past 10 years in terms of installing as one-stop shopping of uh, the uh, uh, identification of depression, anxiety disorders, alcohol and drug abuse problems in primary care, uh, and particularly for the elderly, uh, for immigrants, for poor people, and for people who are concerned about stigma, they won't go anywhere else. Yes. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, so so I I'm, I actually sorry I just couldn't help. Her. I love that story. Uh, yeah. So she's uh, she pays she watches over me. Uh, make sure I don't screw up too much. Well, what what. I, what, what I write about and what I advise <clears throat> is pay attention to what you observe. Write some things down, really simple, not complicated things and not things that you feel, but things you observe. Stayed in bed from Saturday morning to Sunday afternoon. Didn't change clothes for two days. Has, you know, uh, you know, the, uh, has to pull the belt two, two uh, notches tighter. Um, uh, doesn't pick up the phone when other family members call. Very, very specific examples that demonstrate that the person uh, that they know is different. And then get some allies. Another family member, someone else who knows, because in the end you're going to have to present this information to two, two places, neither of which is apt to want to hear it. The one is the person who's sick, they say, oh, you know, I, it's, it's not so bad, blah, blah, blah. Um, nothing helps. I'm not going to do anything, blah, blah. And then the other is going to the primary care doctor who has seven minutes, which is an average appointment time. And they're going to say, oh, Lloyd, oh, he's just getting old, right? It's not that he's depressed. He's just getting old. No, no, no. He's not getting old. Here's something different here. So you have to, this is where you have to get, trust yourself. You have to write things down. You have to build a case with other people who say, you know, this is really uh, different. And then you have to fight in those two areas. And it's not fair. It's not right. I don't mean to suggest that for one moment, but that's what works. That you can go? So, that, so that's another thing that... So <clears throat> sometimes a family member will say, you, know, you say, I want to go to the appointment with you. And sometimes they'll, you know, they'll say, all right, just don't talk too much or something. Uh, but sometimes they say no. Um, and sometimes, and if they're over 18, um, that their, uh, their loved one must sign what's called a uh, consent to speak with somebody. This is federal law, uh, which uh, is about privacy, uh, health insurance privacy, called HIPAA. And, um, but there, what we coach families about, what NAMI especially coaches families about is, because if you call and you uh, say to a doctor, you know, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about my son, 
uh, you know, tell, uh, and the doctor will say, or the, the nurse will say, I'm sorry, we can't talk with you without a consent. Your loved one has not given a consent. You'd think, well, that's, now the door's shut. But the door's not shut. This is how you bend the rules. Turns out that there's no prohibition against that doctor listening or that nurse listening. So that if you're persistent enough and they know you're going to call back day after day till somebody gets on the phone, then you say, look, I know you don't have a consent. I know you can't tell me anything, but I know also there's no prohibition against your listening to me. And here's what you need to know because my son or my husband or my wife is not going to tell you these things. And I want you to know them because you're not going to know them and you're not going to be able to take care of your patient and I know you want to take care of your patient. So that's the, so it is, it is about bending the rules. It, and So um, you could make your own appointment with that doctor. Yes, yes. You can well, make your own appointment. And then right. when you're having your own appointment with that doctor, share the information about your mother, your father, or whatever right. it is that you're concerned about right. in and, your own appointment. Right, and I, and I uh, also urge people to write down two or three things that are the key messages they want to convey and the two or three questions that they want to ask. Because when you actually enter that room, most people get a little fatushed and they, they have a hard time. Um, and so you want to just pull out your piece of paper and say, I've got two, two, three questions, two, three things I want you to know, and I have questions, maybe you can answer. A specific point is uh, a family member who's a member of the Kaiser organization, you can't make an appointment unless you're that patient because you're not in the system. Right. How but do you, you can go about you call, you, you phone, you phone. So the rabbi's point is, you know, you, if you can get in, appointment face-to-face -face is more powerful, but if you can't, you can still call. And some people just barrage with emails or text um, you know, it, it, it's, it, you know it, it's not necessarily the, the sweetest way to approach, but if you're not getting a response and you see somebody deteriorating and you're afraid that something bad is going to happen or they're going to wind up hurting somebody, hurting themselves, hospitalized, you act. Yes? time you might be fearful for yourself because you might be afraid that if that loved one knows that you're trying to get them help that they might threaten you and actually harm you you understand right. and you're doing this delicate dance of how you can try to get the help for the person without that person realizing that you're the force behind it so that that person won't hurt you won't hurt you directly or anyone else in the family directly there, there are two really uh, very horrible situations uh, that families find themselves in. One is where they're afraid that if they act, their own safety will be concerned or will be affected. And then the second is that they're held hostage uh, because they think if they bring something up, their loved one will hurt himself or herself. So aggressive behavior or suicidal behavior are the ways by which families are often held hostage. And those are really tough moments. I don't mean to say there's any simple answer, but no response typically is not a good, uh, because, the, you know, because these conditions, they don't get better, they get worse, and something ultimately does happen. It's subtle, and I am the type of person where I am one 
that I do tend to work more behind the scenes. I have a daughter who was diagnosed at age three. Yeah. So this has been going on for a very long time. She's now 25, so this is 22 years. Yeah, yeah. So you, you do what you can, and, uh, and sometimes and as they get older, you have less control. I want to address the Kaiser system because I used to be the employee assistance <coughs> professional at Kaiser Permanente West Los Angeles service area. And um, I know the system well, and I have a couple of recommendations for you. One is, yes, you can't make an appointment because you're not the member, but it doesn't stop you from doing the very thing that we talked about that you said, Steve, and that you said, and that is you can either find out the name of the doctor and where they are and send them a letter. It would be very hard for you to send an email because Kaiser has an internal email system. You have to get into the patient's record and you have to log in with a, an ID and a password. However, there's nothing to stop you from going there and hand delivering a letter. And I'm happy to give you the name of the medical director for the West Los Angeles service area, if you like. He's Jewish, Howard Fullman. Is that good or bad? It's very good. I know him personally. No, that's, I have it's his a really cell good point number. Because sometimes you do have to escalate your, uh, your efforts at, for information or intervention up the hierarchy until you find a responsive person. patient has to be willing to, to go along with the doctor's recommendation. You've got to have to have a willing patient, which is another problem. Yes. Yeah. 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 Maybe a couple other questions, and then just because I'm watching the time, even though I know this is a dear issue to all of you. Since I've been in L.A., I know that people are very active in their local synagogues, but I very rarely hear of someone saying, I went to a rabbi and welcome to walk in the door and say, I seem to have an issue. I don't know who to turn to. Maybe I'm single. Maybe I don't have a big network of people or a spouse or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Can you go into a rabbi's office and say, I'm not a paying member, but I need mm -hmm. someone to discuss things with you? You can come here. I mean, people do it. Okay. Two people came to me today. Somebody that. called, somebody came in today. Neither of them are members about <clears throat> different issues that they, <laughs> right. that they had. And we happen to, in this synagogue, we happen to have a, a social worker on staff also oh. that we refer people to, and she has resources all over, and not every synagogue does that. But the Jewish Federation, Jewish Family Service in Los Angeles has a project with a whole number of synagogues where they have social workers now that they're putting into synagogues specifically yes. for walk-ins, quote, for anybody just because it's a public and, you know, identifiable religious institution in town so people can, can walk in. So in Los Angeles, they're starting to be a, a bigger network of availability. You don't have to be a member ever to call any rabbi anywhere. You can call me anyway, anytime. Yes. You can all call me anytime. offices so that there's a there better better than that there are very specific um, methods of uh, changing primary care practice uh, that are now in a variety of states in New York 
we've we embarked on doing this in 22 medical centers around the state, essentially uh, implanting a standard operating procedure, depression detection, starting that, and depression management and care managers and even therapists who may be available on site in primary care offices because <clears throat> that's where people go and when and for most chronic disease, the rates of depression, for example, in people with diabetes, bad heart disease, Parkinson's disease, stroke, they're 30 to 40 percent. These doctors have these conditions every day in their offices. So, but, but they're not engineered to, uh, to identify the problem or they're out of their comfort zone. They don't have care managers types of social workers or nurses to help them do that. There's a very specific methodology for doing this, and actually not only is it pretty effective, every dollar spent on this over three or four years saves the health insurance company three to four dollars because they're not spending it on necessary tests and hospitalizations. So that's another, so that, that, that's a very promising uh, change uh, in uh, medical practice. Yes, ma'am. Why is it so hard to get a diagnosis in some cases? <clears throat> um, where? In primary care, in general medical care? No, with specialists. I mean, well, people who are in the field and... Yeah, well... I, I, it's I, a specific I, I, case yeah. where they... Now, this is top care. I, I mean, it's not... Uh, is, is it not getting a diagnosis, or is it the and, diagnosis and is, turns the out not to be right, or it changes over time? No, it, it, it's just very difficult sometimes to pinpoint what the, what is wrong. I'm um, talking, this is mental. Um, I, I, I um, you know, in teenagers, um, it can be harder because their brain is developing and their symptoms change as their brain changes. So uh, often doctors are more tentative with youth about making a diagnosis. But in adults, the profiles of these illnesses are really quite uh, uh, specific. And um, you know there, there are these profile symptom pictures, and they're highly reliable in terms of saying someone's got a depression or they have bipolar disease. So I, I don't understand. Um, well, that, that's, if, if that's not happening in a doctor's office, I don't care where his address is, I would get out of his or her office and find another doctor. So on that note, I want to, uh, <laughs> want to thank Dr. Setter for being here. His, uh, his book is available online. I'm uh, buying a dozen of them myself. You can come. I'll give them to you after <laughs> I buy them. Or uh, <clears throat> you can buy them. We're thrilled to have you. I'm sorry that you became allergic to L.A. the minute you arrived, obviously, um, and hope that you'll... Uh, come back again, and uh, we're thrilled having you, and thank you everybody for coming for, for the evening. Thank you.